have your Bible, please open it up to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to be looking at, I mean, Daniel chapter 1. Sorry, the, our previous governor has gotten into my head. I'm trying to get him out. But in Daniel chapter 1, we're going to be um, actually looking at Daniel chapter 6. But I want to sort of lay the foundation of the book of Daniel. It's a tremendous book. And we're going to be looking at a very familiar passage that even the most littlest of types would have known because it's taught in Sunday school about Daniel in the lion's den. And there are many times to where uh, we're so familiar with the details that we sort of lose the perspective of what is going on. And so there is a need to come at things with fresh eyes as though we have never heard it before. And then we can see the amazing movement of God in history. As we come to the book of Daniel, the theme of the book of Daniel is the book is the word destiny, because the book of Daniel shows God's sovereign plan that he has for the nation of his of Israel. Daniel is now in a foreign land. He came through one of three deportations. He came in, in the first one in 605 B.C. There was a second deportation to where the nation of Babylon came and took people from, Is, from Judah and brought them into, uh, into the land. And that's where Ezekiel was taken through the second deportation. And then in the third and final deportation, Babylon came and just destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C., where as many as 15,000 people were taken. And Babylon's goal by taking the people from their homeland and, and moving them back into, into the home country was to assimilate the nation of Judah into them because resistance was futile. And to do that, they would essentially brainwash them. They would change their education. They would change their lifestyle. They would change their food. They would change their language. They even gave them new names. And so for the Jews, they were in an area that was not their homeland. They were in an area to where they, there was a new culture, a new philosophy that was in their society, that new language they had to learn. They had to learn new habits. And we get to see in chapter 1 and verse 7, Daniel is given a brand new name. He does not have his Hebrew name, which is Daniel, but he's given the name Belteshazzar, which means Bel protects his life. It goes back to one of the local gods of Babylon. And so that was Daniel's name, even though as he writes this, um, uh, this book, he uses his Hebrew name throughout the writing. But when he's dealing with his friends, he uses his pagan name, if you will. And I want you to look at verse 8, because verse 8 of Daniel chapter 1 marks Daniel throughout his entire lifetime. It says in verse 8, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food, or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. And that's foundational because it marked Daniel throughout his entire life that he would not compromise himself to what God's word and God's standard was. For the king wanted to give him um, and his friends the best, the best food, the best lodging, but there were certain aspects of that that would be contrary to what the Word of God says, especially within the diet. And so you sort of know he didn't eat the foreign things. He basically ate vegetables, and him and his friends sort of um, just pr uh, were prosperous because of that. And that was his driving force throughout his entire life, to make sure he did not compromise. Because he knew that during this 70-year period, God was judging his people. For his forefathers, they were disobedient. They worshipped foreign gods, foreign entities. They sort of looked Jewish on the outside, but during uh, most of the time, they looked like the other nations. And so they knew they were un under judgment. For hundreds of years, they were disobedient. And the prophets were sent out, repent, or Judgment will come. Well, he was a, a, a young tyke when this judgment hit. He was taken out of the land, and he was put into a, a position to where he would prosper, but yet at the same time he knew 
that God was displeased. And for a 70-year period, that they would be in this foreign land. But as time passed, I'm sure the Jews thought that this captivity would never end. Because that thought creeps into your mind. When is this going to end? When is this going to end? And so even Psalm 137 was written during this time, which says that there was no joy because they hung their harps on the tree, meaning there was no joy, there was no singing, there was no excitement. They just sort of existed because they knew that God was at work purging their desire to worship other gods just out from them. And so many tremendous events sort of, sort of happened. And now go back to Daniel chapter 6, if you would. Daniel is somewhere in his 60s or her 70s at this point to where God is still using him, but yet there's a brand new nation in which he is dealing with, but yet God still uses, to be, uses him to be one of the leaders to where the king uses. No longer is Nebuchadnezzar or, or his son that golden head of the statue that was one of the visions um, that was related earlier. But now um, the nation um, uh, Medo-Persia was in power. And um, the new king, which we see in uh, verse 6, uh, verse 1 of chapter 6, King Darius is now in power. But yet he still uses Daniel because as we shall see, his life stood out. He was a man who didn't compromise. He was a man of integrity. He was a man who could be trusted. He was a man who was loyal. And so Darius saw this. He saw that he was reliable, but yet at the same time, those around him were not pleased with Daniel at all. And so this morning, we're going to look at that familiar story about Daniel in the lion's den. And hopefully we shall see it with New eyes. And basically, uh, chapter 6 is divided up into three sections. In verses 1 through 9, there's going to be a trap set. In verses 10 through 17, there's the trap is sprung. And then in verses 18 to 28, there is the trap spoiled. And so let's look at these opening verses to see that there is a trap to ensnare Daniel. And so uh, look at verse 1 as, as we begin to see that Daniel is very successful in the first three verses. It seems good to Darius, he's the king of Medo-Persia, to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, one of whom Daniel was, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king may not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. I have that word underlined, extraordinary. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. That word extraordinary means excellent or preeminent. There was something about him that stood out. And at this time, Darius, or his also name is also found as Cyrus. They're sort of interchangeable. He was ruling Medo-Persia for two years. And so when he came into the area and cleaned house, now he was the ruler. And he set up 120 satraps or governors. And so that showed how large the area was. And so there are 120 regions, and over each region there was a satrap, and over all these um, areas there were three commissioners, or um, overseers, or presidents, if you would, who had direct um, counsel to the king. And as we begin to see at the end of verse 3, that Darius wanted to make Daniel the commissioner of commissioners, or the prime minister, if you would. So this Jew, who was not a native of, of Babylon, nor was they a native of Medo-Persia, was going to be appointed over, over, over all of these rulers, all, of, all these people who had authority. And so 
we get to see that throughout all of this, there's going to be a building up of envy and hatred for the Jews and especially for Daniel. But because uh, Daniel is older in his walk with God, we get to see that he is still consistent. He is still faithful to the, uh, to his, the God of his forefathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was familiar with the law, and he wanted to please God, and that came out in, in how he lived out his faith in the place in, in which he had influence over his work. And so he's characterized by this long-term faithfulness throughout his walk, which to me, that sort of gave me a, an understanding that when you, when you look at Christians in the church, Christians within the church never really retire. They just sort of live out of faith. They stay active, and they're used by God. Even though they may slow down in certain areas, they're still useful in the Lord's hands. And it's interesting because the younger generation needs to see what a long-term, consistent, faithful faith looks like so that they can see and how to see a faith getting lived out. And so Daniel and his family, they're there living out their faith, and I'm sure they sort of looked like the Medo-Persians at this point because they were uh, away from the Jews. They, so they probably lost their Hebrew accent. They, were, um, they, were, um, they probably dressed in the same way, and so they, um, they just sort of fit in, except for the fact that they were Jewish, except for the fact they didn't worship the gods of Babylon, and they didn't worship the gods of Medo-Persia, which sort of overlapped. There, there, there were some same gods going on. And so we get to see that through Daniel's life, and as this story begins to play out, Daniel is not going to compromise, even though it would have been very easy for him to compromise, to sort of put uh, his desire um, in front of pleasing the Lord. And so he's living out his faith among his peers, and yet his life is standing out. Because if you put yourself into a pagan culture, uh, I'm sure as we get to see certain elements within our own culture, treachery, uh, people saying one thing, doing a, a, another thing, people being corrupt, I'm sure that all flourished. But when you have someone who is trustworthy, who doesn't complain, who doesn't malign others, who is reliable, a king a ruler, or even a boss, maybe where, where you work, they look for people that they can um, give responsibility to and not worry about. And, and Darius looked at Daniel in the same light. Because of Daniel's faith, he was trustworthy. And so he had integrity in a society, in a culture that probably didn't have integrity. And so the king liked Daniel, and he wanted to raise him up to give him the authority because he was trustworthy. He didn't have to worry about Daniel going behind his back, the responsibility of making sure everything in the kingdom was running smoothly. And that's the picture, and that's what we have here. And so um, Daniel is succeeding. But in verses 4 and 5, we get to see this envy, this hatred. That is against Daniel. Verse 4. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regards to government affairs. And so right now, if you have any, uh, any understanding of politics, you know things don't always go as smoothly or as rightly as they should. And so they're trying to find something. What can we accuse Daniel with when, in concerning his rule of government? But, the verse goes on, they could not find no ground of accusations or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then in verse 5, then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard 
to the law of his God. Yeah, that was a way in to where they can bring a point of accusation. In his business life, in his ruling life, in his family life, no matter where they looked, there was not a, a finger that can be pointed. We got him. But if we understand his faith, it will somehow conflict against the king and the desires of the king. That's where they'll get him. And so they could find no basis to complain against him except where his faith lied. Alistair Begg summed up Daniel like this. He said, Daniel was a man of the 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 Uh, he was he was a man of fear. There's certain words I can't say, and I didn't see that one coming. I, I did get stuck. But anyway, he was a man of purity in a culture that was dirty. He was a man of integrity in a world that was shady. And so he was in, in a culture that, that we would not want to be in, but yet he was a man that stood out. And so whether or not it was his home life, he didn't. He didn't cheat at home. He didn't cheat at work. He was faithful in what he said, and he carried out what he said he would carry out. And so God was glorified with how he acted in all areas of life. There was not one area to where it was in a little compartment to where he acts one way at work. And we've all seen people in this way. I know I, I've had. They act one way at work. They talk one way at work. But when they're with their family, they talk a completely different way. They act a completely different way. Well, he wasn't that way. Though he lived in a secular world, he was a man of faith that lived out his faith in the exact same way because it put God on display. It gave God all of the credit. And so that gives me a footnote to make sure that I'm in that same realm. That when I'm at work, I'm acting the same way. I'm laughing at the proper jokes. When I'm home, I'm with the same way with my family. There's no two different Tims that are out there that one can point a, a finger at. And so Daniel had a target on his back because of the faith that he had. And this sort of picks up exactly where our study in First Peter sort of ended. How to live a life of faith in the midst of persecution. How can I live of faith? And Daniel was one to where he had no compromise in his life, and so it would have friction against those within society to say that his faith is not correct. And so we get to see this target on Daniel's back in verses 6 through 9. Look what this verse says. It says, Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. So they're trying to butter him up already. All the commissioners of the kingdom and prefects and satraps and high officials and governors have consulted together. Well, that wasn't a lie because Daniel wasn't there. It wasn't all. It should have said most, but they threw in the all. Everybody, they're all in agreement that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction. Sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Well, they're buttering up the king because essentially... What they're saying, king, we want to make sure that you are uh, primary in the kingdom. And so pass this, this edict, which can't be changed once it's enforced, even though it's for a short time, for 30 days, it will put you on display and everyone will love who you are. Well, that's a great idea in the king's mind. In the king's mind, it, it's a sign of solidarity. It's a sign of loyalty to the king. 
And so it, for him, I'm sure it's a no-brainer. At face value, it sounds really good. And he's thinking everyone is in agreement. They've all signed. But it's interesting because if you actually look at the document, there was one name that would have been missing. The key guy that he put his trust in, that he wanted to make prime minister, Daniel's name wasn't there. But he signed it anyway. And once it got signed, one could not change it. That was the importance of the law of the Medes and the Persians. And so even though it's for 30 days, his conspirators knew that they finally got Daniel, that there was no way that Daniel would be getting out, out of this. And why? Because they knew Daniel's life. They knew his fate. They knew that there was no way that Daniel could change the way that he was. And so if you look at this entire situation, you get to see that there, there was no basis for the hatred that they had for Daniel. Outside, he was Jewish. Outside, he wasn't one of them. Outside of this one who wasn't one of them was being made into the ultimate prominent spot one step lower from the king. And the only thing Daniel did was live out of faith. The only thing Daniel did was, was being godly. The only thing Daniel tried was to please the Lord by all of his actions. And so that should be the same way for God's people. That should be the same way for yourself. When people at work, they ask me, well, I never hear you swear. And I said, well, no, I, I don't have that desire. Well, I, when, when we go out for... Um, at the bank uh, to a restaurant. Well, you don't drink? No, no, I choose, I choose not to. Uh, well, do you do you then argue with your wife? No, I try not to. I'm Italian, but I try. I really try not to. But it doesn't mean that I'm perfect. Would be the next area that I go into. But I'm just trying to be better today than I was yesterday. And so I usually end that kind of conversation. Well, if you can pray for me, I would really appreciate that because. I want to do what Jesus would have me do. And so it is my testimony that I have because if I compromise in some area, they will just see me, they will just see my walk, they will just see my faith in my God as just like everyone else. You can tweak it, you can change it, you can sort of compromise it. And ultimately, they will view me as just like those charlatans that they can be on TV, that they're just hypocrites, that they're just, just like everyone else. And so they could not handle Daniel's unswerving commitment to his God. Daniel had that unshakable core conviction that was, that was uh, pushed directly into him from knowing that God was judging his people and he was the direct recipient of that judgment, not being in the homeland where the temple would have been, worshiping the God of Israel, but that for a 70-year period, he and his people would be outside of the land, outside of being able to worship God properly. And so he wanted to be obedient and faithful in all areas to not go down any kind of slippery slope. And so when, when the world looks at, at our faith, they know that they're a little bit religious, but they're not quite like us because they sort of view these Christians as fanatics, that they're just too much into it. You know, I go to church once in a while, but I'm not fanatical like you. But having a faith is not a, fanat a fanaticism. It's a consistency. It's a desire that lies at our core core conviction that I am not going to compromise myself because somehow it will affect my walk with God and it will affect my testimony to him. And so the edict goes out. There is a law, and I'm sure Daniel gets it, and he reads it, and he goes, uh-oh, this is not going to be a good thing. And so we begin to see that there was a way in which they 
um, that they could go and catch Daniel. Because Daniel could have sort of changed the way that he was religious because they knew Daniel prayed every day. They knew that, um, that Daniel prayed out in the open. And so Daniel could have still prayed, just prayed behind closed doors. He could have just gone into the woods in prayer. He could have just told them that he's praying to the king, and, but he's really praying to Yahweh. But that was not the case. They knew that Daniel would pray regularly, would fall on his knees, turn his face to Jerusalem, that, and he would pray three times a day. They knew that he would not go through some new religious exercise just to um, appease this one le legislation. And so Daniel didn't start some kind of new religious protest and by praying in some other way for his disapproval of the law. He just did what he always had, always had done. And so Daniel was faced with this aspect of do I follow the law of the land or do I follow the law of God? And so he knew that there was a line drawn in the sand. It was a clear line. It was a definitive line. He knew God's word said this, but if he would pray to any other God, it would displease him. And the thing about it is only, it was only for 30 days. He could have just, well, I'm not going to pray for 30 days. Get around it. And so this was coming against him. This was there, that line in the sand. And so living out of faith in the midst of a persecution can have a great effect on one's life. And we saw that in 1 Peter, because 1 Peter um, in chapter 4 says, Don't be surprised by the fiery or ordeal among you which comes upon you for, you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice in exultation. And so the, law, the, the line was drawn in the sand. There are issues that he had to decide. And we have issues as God's people that are running amok in society. What shall we do? Shall we capitulate and, and give in on certain areas? Should we just sort of find a middle ground? Because even issues like salvation, that's a huge issue right now. Because if we go to tell society that Jesus is the only way, which is one of the I am statements, we haven't gotten to yet, but if he was the only way, they would say that, that you're narrow in your thinking, that you're a hate monger. And so there are issues that are out there. But when God's word says something, we should have the firm conviction to stand on what God's word says. Because we're only the messenger of what God's word is. We didn't write it. And if one has a disapproval about things, they need to take that up with the author. And so our position comes from what the Bible says. And our Lord says that the world will hate us. Our Lord said in Matthew chapter 5 is that blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before you. And then it goes on that they, they hate the Lord because they hate us for loving the Lord. And so the trap is now set. The edict has gone out. But in verses 10 through 17, to the mo few moments that we have left, the trap is going to be sprung. Look at verse 10. Now when David knew that the document was signed... He entered his house, now in his roof chamber. He had windows open towards Jerusalem. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. 
So he prays in the same manner as he, that he had done before. And it's interesting here because we, we have a note. He's praying towards Jerusalem. Why is he praying towards Jerusalem? But in 1 Kings chapter 8, in verses 44 and 45, it talks about praying towards Jerusalem. And so he prays for Jerusalem because that's where the temple would have been. That's where the worship, the proper worship of God would have taken place. And he does it three times a day. Well, in Psalm 55, verses 16 and 17, it talks about praying three times a day. Maybe that's where he got it. No matter what the, um, the reason is, he's there praying. It's consistent. There's a pattern. His conspirators knew it. And he just did the same things. He didn't go behind closed windows. He didn't uh, try to beef up his prayer regiment and protest in, in any way. It was all the same. And so he's there praying, and the trap is now sprung. And in verses 11 through 15, we get to see that Daniel is caught. Look what it says. It says, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition. So they catch him praying. Yeah, he's praying there in supplication before his God. And then they approach and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. And they say, and look how they word things. Because the king knows what he has done. And they say to the king, did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? So they, they, they start with the basis of the law. Didn't you say that they're there to worship you? I sure did, was the, king, was the king's response. And that's what he said. Look at the end of verse 12. This, that statement is true according to the laws of Medes and Persians. And so he's even saying, and it can't be changed. And then in verse 13, here it is. And then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. And so that's where they hate God's people. Why? Because he's not one of them. He's from one of those exiles taken into captivity from the area of Judah. Pay no, he pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you sign, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Whew, he just doesn't do it once. He does it three times. And so they go before the king. Did you not have a law? King said, I sure did. Can it be broken? It can't be broken. Why? Has someone broken it? Yeah, they sure did. Who was it? Daniel. And the king immediately said, uh-oh. Because they were implying that he hasn't fully adopted this country as his country, that he's not being loyal, that, that he in some way is going to one day conspire against you. But the king knew that wasn't true because he wanted to give him the keys to the kingdom. Here, I want you to run it. I'm just going to sit back and just enjoy things. And so they're ultimately saying that he's paying no attention to you. So he disobeys that law willingly, and he throws it in your face, does it three times a day. And so we get to see that with very little effort, they get to spring the trap and catch Daniel because he's giving thanks to his God. And it's interesting because we can view Daniel at this point as the hero of the story. Because I'm sure many pastors would, would end their message by coming to this story and then having us all sing, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. Good song. But that's not the point of the story here. Because he's not the hero. Because Daniel, Daniel would have said, wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm not the hero. Because in verse 20, the king even, even is going to go on to say that Daniel is just a servant of the living God. And so Daniel would have said the same thing. But God is the hero of the story. And so in, instead of singing dare to be in Daniel, we should be singing to God be the glory for the great things he has done. And so... Verse 14 
takes that idea and goes this way. Look, look what it says. And then as soon as the king heard the statement, which are the words of the opponents of Daniel, he was deeply distressed. He cared for Daniel. He trusted Daniel. And he knew that right at the offset, there's something wrong and that there's something bad is about to happen. His heart is also fighting the aspect that he was set up with a trap by these guys, and that's going to get to be played out. And then in the middle of verse 14, he tries to find a way to deliver Daniel. So he set his mind on delivering Daniel. Even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. <laughs> Look at verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king to say, Recognize, O king. It's your law. It's the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. And, and so they're throwing the law back at the king who knows the law because that's, that's what it is. And so the king was upset. He was uh, upset on many fronts. And so he tried. He goes to his people. Is there any way to change it? And he tries and he talks to people and he tries and there's no way that it could be changed because his opponents said, you can't change it. No matter how much you look, you can't change it. He's done. It's almost like the last and final jab at Daniel. And then at the end of the day, Daniel is sentenced. Look at verses 16 and 17. And then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, what a great statement. Your God, whom you constantly serve. That just is convicting to me right there. But an unsaved person is telling Daniel, your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. And the stone was brought, laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of the nobles so that nothing could be changed in regards to Daniel. And I'm sure the king may have went to Daniel and said, um, Daniel, has your God ever saved anyone from lions before? And I'm sure Daniel would have been there. No, 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 no one's, no one's been saved directly from, from lions. And the king would have said, no, well, somehow your God is going to save you. And so it's a tremendous statement to the God of Israel that he is making. And so the, this king may not even have heard about what the previous government under Nebuchadnezzar dealing with Daniel and his friends in that fiery, fiery uh, furnace. But he had confidence to know that somehow Daniel's God would, would come through. And so in verses 18 through 28, we see the trap foiled. And so Darius is worried. So Daniel is there. The, uh, the, do, uh, the, the stone is in front of the door. It's sealed with the king and all of the other nobles. So the king couldn't even, uh, even come by and open it up. And so the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting. And no entertainment was brought before him. And his sleep fled from him. So he was up all night, fasting, concerned about Daniel. And so if you know anything about animals, especially large animals, they get cranky when they're not fed. And I'm sure that sort of all played into it, that Daniel was in a bad situation. And so he had no distractions that were brought to him to interfere with his concern about Daniel and his God. And so he fasted the entire night. But in verses 19 through 23, we get to see Daniel being delivered. Look at verse 19. Then the king arose at dawn and at daybreak and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near to the den of Dan to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. That tells me he really had no hope. He, he, was, he, was, he was quite upset. And he cries out, Daniel, servant of the living God, 
Has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lion's den? And so he's acknowledging the God of the Jews. And in verse 21, it's like, O king, live forever. He hears Daniel's voice. It's muffled, I'm sure, by the door. It must be a sound effect, but he hears Daniel's voice. And he goes on to say, My God sent his angel and shut the, the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. It was an angel who kept the lion at bay. Now, was it the same angel that appeared in the fiery furnace who looked like a, a son of God, who may have been a pre-incarnate picture of Christ? We're not told. But the point was, the lions didn't devour Daniel. And so my question is, in my own mind, when I do my own study, because I, I get bored a lot, what did Daniel do during the night? They he could have he he just sat in a corner, just looked at the, the angel and the lions. But as anyone who knows cats, big cats are just like little cats. They're just a whole lot bigger. Uh, maybe he came by and scratched the back of the neck and he started purring because big cats do purr. You may not know that. Maybe he scratched their, their tummy. Uh, the, the thing about it was they didn't consume him. And so no matter how he spent the night with, with these cats, they were there. And so in verse 23, we find the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den and no injury whatever was found upon him because he had, and I have this word, trusted in God. I have that circle. And it's interesting because he wasn't even scratched. If you know anything about, if you ever owned a cat, you get scratched all the time for the silliest things. They just sort of walk by and scratch you. But Daniel had no scratches at all. That's why I think they were big kitties from purring. And so this was a huge miracle because no one to this point in human history has ever been spared from a hungry group of lions. They would have been devoured. They would have been gone. They would have been no, no trace of them. But here, here he is walking out, not even a scratch, because he trusted God. And so, though this is a tremendous miracle, it doesn't necessarily mean God always works in that way. Because if you look at Isaiah's life, it is believed that he uh, believed God, but he was sawn in half. Paul believed God and was relieved of his head. Peter was crucified upside down. And so the history is filled with the blood of the martyrs who still believed God and trusted God. But we get to see that God wanted to show to his people that he was faithful and sovereign even over a pagan nation while they were in exile. And so he is sovereign over all situations, even in that kind of situation. And so even when his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, was about to be thrown into the fiery furnace, they said, uh, if God delivers us, that's great. But if he doesn't, that's okay too. But we're not going to serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. They were determined not to compromise. And so Daniel, through his faithfulness, trusted God that God would get all the glory because of him. And then we get to see the conspirators are executed. <laughs> the king, <laughs> you never... There's a life lesson there. You never upset the ruling powers. And this is why. Then the king gave order, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel. So the king knew exactly what was going on, that they had maliciously accused him. And they cast them, cast their children, cast their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. And so through God's providence of them not eating during the course of the night, they were not only hungry, but they were extra hungry. 
and they had their morning breakfast. Well, look at God being exalted, which is how this chapter ends. God is exalted. Then Darius, the king, wrote to all the people, the nations, the uh, area of Medo-Persia, of every language who were living in all the land, may peace abound. And I decree that in all of the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. For he is a, the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders. We just saw one in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So a decree goes out. The story goes out. There is something special about the God of Israel. Because Israel was always supposed to be a signpost for salvation for the nations. But through their unfaithfulness, they were no signpost. They were just like everyone else. But now, God, the God of Israel is getting all the credit. And so chapter, the chapter ends in verse 28. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus of Persia. And so the story ends at the aspect of the Lord getting glorified. The Lord standing out and being exalted. That there was something special about their God as compared to all of the other gods in the nation. And it's because of Daniel's willingness to not to compromise his faith. And so that's the first um, uh, lesson that we can take away with. We need to know that there are areas to where they are easy to compromise, but we're not to compromise our walk with him. And so Daniel had to choose once again, will I be faithful to his God or not be faithful? And we're faced at, at those kinds of decisions all the time, and in the future we will be faced with those decisions. When society calls us hate mongers, what are we going to do? Are we going to still be loving? Are we still going to share the gospel with them? Come alongside those who are hurting? And so it goes back to that there is a line in the sand. What would you do? There's another aspect about the story which stands out to me. is the priority of forming godly or holy habits. Daniel prayed. There was an aspect of of his life that people knew. In, in my life, I go to church on Sunday. That's what I do. What, what else would I do? If I decided to stay home, what would I do? Can't have a pastor staying home, but everyone in, else in the church can sometimes. But I pray. You know, um, I, live, I live a faith out in the world, and it's not going to change. And so there are good, certain habits that are there that shows forth the glories of God. It's interesting, if, you, if we had time, I just want to sort of walk through very quickly through, through the one minute that I, that I have left, is that when you look at this story, it's, it's a great foreshadow of Christ himself. There's a lot of similarities of what Daniel went through and what our Lord went through, because the Bible is really a book about Jesus. Daniel was conspired against by, by the, those other leaders. The chief priests and elders of Israel conspired against Christ. With Daniel, there was no basis for the charge to get, be brought against him. It's the same thing with our Lord. He was found not guilty of violating uh, the laws of the Medes and Persians. And Jesus didn't violate the law of God, only the law of the Jews. Darius tried to intervene on behalf of Daniel. And with the Lord, Pilate, though it was a poor attempt, tried to make an attempt to intervene for Christ. Daniel trusted in God, and our Lord trusted in God in the garden. When he cries out, not my will, but thine will be done. Daniel descended into a pit, and Jesus' body was placed into a tomb. 
the den was covered with a stone, and Jesus' tomb had a stone rolled in front of it. That um, the den was sealed with a king's seal, and Jesus' tomb was sealed with a Roman seal. Daniel was found um, alive early the next morning. Jesus rose again from the dead on the first Easter morning. Daniel prospered at the end of, of the chapter, and Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And so Daniel gives hope for the exiles of his day that God is sovereign and would fulfill them going back into the land, whereas Jesus provides hope for the exiles of our day. And so we get to see that Daniel is, is here to give us hope during times in which we can compromise. But yet it is a time to where for all those who turn to him can have that salvation in the living God. And so the, the decree goes out like it goes out this morning. If you have never placed your faith in Christ, you need to do that. For he is your hope. He is your salvation. And he will wash you as white as snow. Father, so much more could be said, but the flakes haven't fallen yet, but that's okay. We have had the opportunity to open your word. And though we heard a familiar story, it is one in which we stand amazed at. For we love to hear examples in which your name gets to be high and lifted up because you are high and lifted up. But it is amazing to think that it comes through the faithfulness of your people. And so as we go out into this world, let us be like Daniel. Let us want to not only where those lines of the sand are drawn, but in everything that we do, whether it's words that we say, that those could be pleasing in your sight. Actions that we do, that those could be pleasing in your sight. That our relationship with our spouses, that could be pleasing in your sight. That how we raise our children, that that could be pleasing in your sight. How we are at work, Father, that people will see a difference, difference in, in the way that we handle ourselves compared to everyone else in the office. That that too can be pleasing in your sight. So, Father, it is our desire to put you in your glory and be so help us, Father, be like a Daniel and give you all of the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name.